Our scripture this morning comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 26. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is God's word. Good morning. So my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just realized that this is lower than I wanted it, so we'll just have to go with it here. We're in the middle of a series on Romans, uh, and as you can see from your worship folder on the insert, we're in Romans 8. Uh, and if you look there on your insert, I said under the introduction that Paul interrupts Romans 8 uh, with this section that Susan just read to us. Uh, and we have spent the last few weeks in chapter eight, we started on Palm Sunday uh, and have been there uh, ever since. Chapter eight of Romans is arguably, many people feel this way, uh, one of the most powerful and beautiful chapters in all the Bible. Uh, and just to review for a minute, and if you have a Bible open, you can uh, refer to where I'm gonna kind of point you and if not, just listen. But the chapter opens with Paul saying, for the Christian, there's no condemnation. The verdict is in. That's great news, right? Uh, it, it should be. And then he ends the chapter by saying, for the Christian, and this is where Drew went on uh, Easter, on Resurrection Sunday, there's absolutely nothing that will separate us from God's love and affection. And he said, he's decisively set his affection on you. And I remember he said that several times uh, in the course of the sermon, probably because we need to hear it <laughs> again and again and again and again. But that's the bookends of the chapter. Jesus experienced the se separation we deserved as God the Father decisively removed his affection and presence from him. And so Paul could write Romans 8. And furthermore, as we talked about last week, you get the Spirit 
You get the spirit of Jesus that cries, Father, Dad, the spirit of adoption, which enables a profound peace and a security. But here, right smack in the middle of the chapter, we have this passage uh, that doesn't certainly sound all that great, right? Uh, Paul talks about things like suffering, groaning, waiting, hoping, weakness, not knowing how to pray. In other words, he, he's describing real life. Real life for the Christian, that is. Even though the bookends are true, the middle is there as well, and the middle is true as well. So today, uh, we're going to walk through it, and we're going to do so under the three headings there in your uh, worship folder. They're printed on the outline you have it on, the, on the insert. And they are the following. We're going to look at groaning. Uh, right? Everybody do it with me. Uh, I know you've grown today thus far, at least at something. If you haven't, I want your life. Come talk to me afterwards so I can move in with you, okay? Secondly, we're going to look at hoping and waiting. And then thirdly, uh, suffering. Uh, and, and all of these are, are things that Paul meditates on and, and we should meditate on as a result from this chapter, okay? So first, groaning. Uh, what causes you to groan? What does Paul say is groaning in these verses? Why all this groaning? Um, he says regarding creation a number of things, and these are all so profound. And I got to be honest, um, I was even finishing this up uh, this morning, uh, and I thought as I started to kind of add things, because if you're like me and you don't do this very often, and you have to, you know, fill in for, you know. Uh, you kind of have a complex of like, oh gosh, maybe I should say that. Well, I, I need to say that too. Oh man, I, I, yeah, I can't let it go without saying that. And then pretty soon you're thinking, well, I'm going to be up there for 50 minutes. God help us, right? Uh, and so there's a lot of things here that I'm probably not going to get a chance to say, um, but I would encourage you to go back and and meditate on this passage just again and again and again. And one of those things is all the stuff he says about creation and the way creation is groaning. Look at some of the things he says. Verse 19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Everywhere you look, you can sense something has gone terribly wrong in the world, right? Uh, for the creation was subjected to futility as the human stewards of earth fell, all creation fell with them. That's in the first couple of pages of the Bible. So let me encourage you, go back and read page one, page two, page three. It'll make the world make a whole lot more sense if you're wondering, what on earth is wrong with people? And I know I've talked about that before, right? If you find yourself saying, what is wrong with people? Go back and read the first three pages, right? Um, as Adam's descendants, we're left with what one writer called a nostalgia for the Eden we've never known, yet that it somehow circulates in our blood. We can all feel that. The creation itself is hoping it will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Not just any hope, but a blood-bought 
hope, the same creation that fell on the coattails of humanity will rise on the coattails of humanity, a new humanity started in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. For we know that the whole creation's been groaning together, verse 22, in the pains of childbirth until now. This is the birth pains of new life. And notice what Paul says. He says creation several times, and then he gets to verse 22, and he says the whole creation. In other words, everything you can see, all the animals, all, all the trees, all the flowers, all the little you know, maggots, ants, everything, right? The whole creation is groaning under the birth pangs, longing for this new life. Forests and meadows and mountains, longing to do what we read about in the call to worship, exult and sing for joy. Let the sea roar. Right? Let the trees of the forest clap their hands. They're longing to do that. And they do it sometimes right in faint whispers, like when you go to Great Smoky Mountains National Park and you stand on top of Grandfather Mountain and the wind's blowing through or you look down and you feel so small or you're at a beautiful sunrise or sunset, depending on which coast of Florida that you're on, you get a whisper of it, right? You can hear it. There's two ways that creation expresses its groaning, and Paul mentions those. Verse 20, he says, the creation was subjected to futility. A better word is frustration. It's the same Greek word that's used in Ecclesiastes for vanity. There's a frustration, right? Uh, it's due to our alienation from one another, both humans to one another and humans to the created realm as well, right? Originally, if you go back and look at Genesis 1, verse 29, we were to be the directors, the rulers, the stewards of creation. But now, we're separated, and we frustrate each other. So, for example, uh, I'm not going to be able to relax when there's a six-foot gator in the pond behind my house, staring down my dogs while they run around my backyard. What's my response to that alligator? Well, the response that everyone should have to all things with the word gator in it. <laughs> Institutions, T-shirts, it doesn't matter. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but with the alligator, what do I want to do to it? Oh, I want to shoot it. Right? Or I want to call the state to come harvest it for me. Right? That's what they say. You realize this gator will be harvested and it will not be relocated. Yes, please, God, thank you. Right? Come as fast as you can. Why can't I relax? Because we're alienated. I know that sounds weird to think I'm alienated from the alligators, but that's what Paul's saying. The creation was, was subjected to frustration. Right? You don't go camping in the African savanna out in the open by yourself with no help, right? No. Why? Because lions and tigers and bears, oh my, right? At least lions. I've been to the African savanna. I've seen them from a way distance. I don't want to get near them. That's a problem, right? And we just read in Isaiah 66 the other day that the wolf and the lamb will lie down together and graze together. 
when's the last time you saw that happen? There's a reason why he says wolf and lamb, right? Because wolves hunt lambs. Lambs are the prey. Wolves are the predators. Creation frustrates itself because of that very thing going on. Not only that, verse 21, the creation's in bondage to corruption. Decay and decomposition are regular occurrences. They're all over. Nature certainly has amazing ways of, of reproducing itself and fighting that, but even the mighty live oaks that we have in our area, beautiful, shade, I mean, gorgeous trees, right? They will eventually die. And it's all part of the groaning that Paul's describing. Now, <clears throat> uh, yes, I'm going to talk about C.S. Lewis today, multiple times. So go ahead and, you know, get your mockery and laughter out of the way, because I'm going to bring him up, because he's amazing, okay? If you have not read the Chronicles of Narnia, you need to go home to this afternoon, download them on your Kindle or whatever you like to read on, or the actual books, you know, there's those too, and start reading them. Because what you'll find is he expresses this powerfully throughout the series. Why or how? Well, animals and humans talk and walk together in Narnia. Well, that's a little weird. In The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, Narnia is groaning under the spell of the White Witch. And what is it in Narnia? Winter, right? And all the Narnian creatures are longing for redemption from the spell under which she has put the land until who shows up? Aslan, right? And whenever C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia talks about, or whenever one of the characters in Narnia talks about Aslan's on the move, I heard Aslan's here. I heard Aslan has showed up. What happens to everybody? Oh, what's he going to do? It's really, it, 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 like everybody stops. The snow begins to melt and winter retreats and spring dawns once again in Narnia. Man, just meditate on Narnia the rest of the day. You, you, you won't, you won't you'll be glad you did. It's really incredible. Well, what does our groaning look like? Paul talks about our groaning in addition to the creation's groaning. Well, just ask this question of yourself, sitting there in your seat. You don't have to say it out loud, but what causes you to groan? What kinds of things cause you to groan? For me, uh, those of you who, who uh, have been around me before, uh, certainly traffic causes me to groan. I don't like slow traffic, right? Ugh, you know? Um, I, I, I don't like it when I can't find something, which usually means my son has taken it and is, is using it somewhere, right? Uh, there are lots of different things that cause you to groan. Some of them are silly and inconsequential. Some of them are significant. Well, why is that? We groan because things break, right? Amen. We groan because we break. The older you get, the harder it is to get up out of the bed, right? We groan because the world around us isn't operating as it was designed to do, and that's frustrating. You groan because you're out in the chain of lakes, you stop in the middle of the lake to get some cold water to swim, particularly on the really hot days, at least that's what you do. If you're new to Florida, you're new to this area, that's what you do, you go to the middle. The colder water tends to be there, and you stop, and you're ready to jump in, and what do you see in the water? An empty can, right? Oh, what is wrong with people? 
that causes you to groan. Right? You groan when the car has another repair that's needed. The blueberry farmer groans when he discovers that pigs have rooted up several of the fruit bushes. Right, All of this is evidence in very small and in other large ways that we're bothered by the world's malfunctions and we're nostalgic for Eden. Okay, Now, here's two things you got to be careful of, and I would just caution you toward uh, with groaning. There's two ways it can go wrong. The first is, you find yourself not groaning. You're not yearning, right? You, you, you watch the Narnia movies and you're kind of like, well, isn't that, isn't that neat? You know, guy was a little weird. He came up with a land where the, you know, centaurs and dryads and nymphs are talking to the human beings. What in the world? It's a little, little strange. If you don't find yourself, chances are you have given in. You've maybe even given up. The Bible calls it the world, the flesh, and the devil. This, this triad has captured your imagination and attention to the exclusion of groaning because groaning is something clearly here, Paul says, is part of the Christian life. Lewis describes this as fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. Those things have captured your attention. And you need to be seized by the power of a greater affection. The love of God for you in Christ. But the other end of the spectrum is that you overgroan. You whine, you complain, you grumble. You're thin-skinned. So silly examples would be uh, your team loses and you just can't take it. Right? Well... All the teams that I follow, for the most part, uh, have been losing. Except for one, lately we're on a bit of a winning streak. I follow Orlando City, uh, we go to the games, they're on a winning streak. But what happens when they're gonna go on a losing streak? I'm gonna whine and complain, fire the coach, right? I mean, you get, ooh. You're laying down in bed to relax and you realize the remote is in another room. <laughs> Has anybody had that one? God, I hate that one. Drives me nuts, right? Or you can't find your keys. Yes, anybody? Can't find your keys? Those are kind of silly examples, but more serious ones are if you find yourself full of envy over the life that other people have and you, you, you're groaning and you're complaining when you see them inwardly, maybe not outwardly, or a loss of control spins you out of control when you come to realize Gosh, I'm not in control of my life. And it causes you to grumble, causes you to complain, causes you to find why it's everyone else's fault. Well, why all this groaning? Well, I would take you back to a, a, a pretty profound passage, at least for me, in Exodus chapter 2. Okay, so second book of the Bible. Israel groans because of the slavery of their Egyptian taskmasters. This is Exodus 2.23. And in verse 25... It says something very interesting. It says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Many years later, God would come in the flesh and Jesus Christ of Nazareth would see groaning firsthand and he would know it. He would experience it. You know how I know that? Because in the gospels, when Jesus would come into uh, the, the presence of people who were broken or when things didn't work right, you, see, you know what he did a few times? 
I don't know, there were a few times it's recorded, he could have done it a ton, but he sighed. He groaned. Okay, when eyes and ears didn't work the way he made them, that was his response. So he knows and understands your groaning, my groaning. As you groan, he groans with you. Even with the reality of him having come in the flesh, defeating sin and death, ensuring that nothing can separate us from God's love, there's still groaning. Paul's being honest with us about what we should expect and already know to be true. A groan is a longing for deliverance. It's a cry for relief. I have some friends who their, their son is about one. He's dealt with some heart issues and he still is dealing with some, some bad reflux and then he chokes when he's throwing up. It's really, it's really awful. And I was with them the, the other night just chatting away and, and he just starts throwing up and then he relax, then they throw up again, they relax. And you can just see it on their face and even it, it, it audibly came out of them, oh, right? What causes you to do that? Whatever it is, it's because you're waiting for something. And so if you look secondly there at hoping, what are you eagerly waiting for? Notice all the waiting in this passage, okay? Creation waits, creation hopes, for freedom, his longing for freedom, we wait eagerly, verse 23. And so what is something you find yourself currently eagerly waiting for? Pain relief? Deliverance? Communication from an estranged friend or, or family member, someone you haven't heard from in a long time, an offer on a house, a child to be born? Paul says creation is waiting and hoping. Instead of frustration, Creation is waiting to experience fulfillment. Mountains and forests and lakes and rivers and the star formations, all the glory and wonder they fill us with now. Can you imagine when they're freed up? How amazing they'll be then? Right? Not only that, but instead of decay and corruption, creation's waiting to experience strength and newness. Because in the new earth, and we read about this in Isaiah 65 and, and 66 even, it, things will grow in strength and number forever. The alienation we in the creation currently experience will cease. Wolves and lambs will graze together. And, and I wanna read you a couple of um, lines from uh, a song uh, by Andrew Peterson. It's called Dark Before the Dawn. And I found myself thinking about this ever since last uh, Sunday ever since, you know, the, the, the beginning of the week. He says this, I've been waiting, so this is the refrain, I've been waiting for the sun to come blazing out of the night like a bullet from a gun till every shadow is scattered, every dragon's on the run. Oh, I believe, I believe that light is gonna come. And this is the dark, the dark before the dawn. I've been waiting for some peace to come raining down out of the heavens on these war-torn fields, all creation is aching for the sons of God to be revealed. Oh, I believe, I believe that the victory is sealed. The serpent struck, but it was crushed beneath his heel. And then he says, Lord, I'm waiting for a change. I'm waiting for a change. He says, I'm waiting for the king to come galloping out of the clouds while the angel armies sing. He's gonna gather his people in the shadow of his wings, and I'm gonna raise my voice with a song of the redeemed because all this darkness is a small and passing thing. 
I'm just waiting for a change. And then he talks about dreaming. And he says that three different times, I had a dream I was waking at the burning edge of dawn. You ever have that dream? He, he ends the song by saying, I had a dream I was waking at the burning edge of dawn and I could finally believe the king had loved me all along. Man. But if you look at verse 23 closely, what do we have now? And for what are we waiting? Paul says, very significantly, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the first batch of a harvest that was referred to uh, back in, in his day as the first fruits. It, it's, it's, it's the foretaste, it's the appetizer. A future harvest is coming, but you would gather the first fruits as kind of the, the, the first taste of that. Well, what does that mean for us? You gotta keep reading. Verse 24 and 25, Paul says, in this hope we were saved. Hope of what? Hope of the redemption of our bodies. He takes us to hope, which is a distinctively Christian trait, by the way. You can't be a hopeful person without being a Christian. When you come to faith in Christ, you receive the spirit of adoption. Drew talked about that last week. It enables you to cry out to God as your Abba, your dad. And it's an experience of grace that results in a relationship that's very intimate. And yet, Paul seems to say that that experience is only the beginning because we're still groaning, right? We're still groaning. We have been legally adopted, but we don't yet have the full family resemblance. And so, for example, a couple may legally complete the adoption of a child, but it, it takes years and years for that child to feel and come to realize their full family status. It's a process, right? We long for sin and death to be eradicated, we long for our bodies to be redeemed and renewed. That's what Paul is saying when he says, creation's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, for the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We're like getting snippets of it now. But one day, he says, when you doubt, when hope seems small, hear the groans of creation itself as they assure you redemption is on its way. Redemption is on its way. The hope of the redemption of our bodies is a reference to the resurrection. None of us have seen a resurrection body, but we know Jesus got one, and there's something inside hope that can produce a patient endurance in the meantime, and that's what Paul says. Who hopes for what he sees? We can't see it, but if we hope for it, and it's a hope that's based in faith, and based on what we know to be true, then we wait for it with patience, right? Now, if you look back at the assurance of pardon in your worship folder, uh, I was really just slayed by this passage again and again this week. Paul says, while we are still in this tent, we what? We groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And then he says this, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. See, the spirit is a guarantee that redemption is coming. It's why even he's groaning. 
What's he groaning for? He wants it too. He's longing for it too. The resurrected Jesus sends us the spirit to pray for us as we wait, as we, as we patiently endure in suffering. And the hope that we can't see is in fact assured because of his presence. But here's where it turns. Resurrection. Resurrection is the hinge on which this problem of suffering, the reality of suffering, turns. It's, it's, it's a groaning creation, he describes. We're groaning as a people. The Holy Spirit is interceding with us or interceding for us with groanings. God doesn't minimize or deny suffering. He tackles it head on. And that's where I want to end with verse 18. So look there with me at, at verse 18. Let me actually start in verse 16 where Paul says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul says, if you're God's child, you're an heir to an eternal inheritance. But he also says, if you're God's child, you'll suffer alongside Jesus. But, but when he stops to consider the sufferings of the present, it's like we're following his train of thought here, and he finishes verse 17, and there weren't all these breakups in the original uh, manuscripts with the different title headings and paragraphs and all that stuff. And so he's just riding along, and then he says, because, you know, I consider, after all, if I'm being honest, the sufferings of this present time, they're not even worth comparing. It's a waste of time to try to compare them to the coming glory, the thing that creation and we and even the Spirit are longing for. Again, 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, it's in the assurance of pardon, eternal glory far outweighs our worst suffering. Now hear me, it's not that temporary suffering is small. I'm not minimizing it or pretending like you should either. It's just that eternal glory is so huge. Your, your suffering may be like a boulder the size of the Rock of Gibraltar, right? Everybody know the Rock of Gibraltar? You know what I'm talking about? Google it, not at this moment, and you'll find a picture. It's a really big rock. You can't lift it. I can't lift it. It's a really big rock. But suppose you put that rock on one side of the scales, and then on the other side you put the planet Jupiter, right? Uh, in and of themselves, our sufferings may be very weighty, but compare them to eternal glory, right? Endless beauty, everlasting happiness, the relative weights change our perspective, don't they? That's what Paul's saying. So my question to you is where are you most prone to lose heart right now? Where are you most prone to lack courage right now? Notice Paul makes two very simple but amazing statements in the midst of the assurance of pardon. He says, that was the first, the first sentence, we do not lose heart. And then a little bit later into chapter five, he says, we are always of good courage. Now how in the world can he say that? Well, because Jesus Christ has died and been raised for our sake. And in him, suffering has meaning. It's no longer meaningless. It's not random or pointless. Paul has confidence that Jesus' resurrection and glory ensures his and yours and mine, if our faith is in Christ. 
if you know where you're headed in the future, you won't even entertain the idea that your current problems and pain aren't worth it. And I'm, at, at, at that point, I wrote in my notes, example, Charlotte, who's a friend of ours, a member of uh, this church, and, and, and a person who I, I just I wrote that down, and I thought, yeah, that was her. Didn't even, didn't even, the, the problems and the pain and, and, and her, her, her disease, she never thought it wasn't worth it. She made great uh, use out of it because she knew where she was headed. She, she yielded with abiding enthusiasm to a view of life that includes all the events of her experience, but she didn't exhaust herself in those experiences. Does that make sense? So reflecting as I finish on Romans 8, 18, the suffering has to be seen in light of the glory. It's preparation. In the Bible, you'll be hard-pressed to find a passage that references suffering without also mentioning glory because the two are linked. Anytime Jesus would refer to his, he, he, he mentioned glory alongside of it. Paul says, your suffering proves your sonship. It's a mark of, the child, of a child of God. But not only that, the glory has to have weight. It has to have power. It has to have significance. So much so that you can say it's not even worth comparing with the sufferings of this present time. And remember the guy that's writing this. It ain't like he didn't suffer or know what suffering was. Bodily, mentally, phys- uh, emotionally. I mean, it, it runs the gamut, right? Uh, listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis from a sermon called The Weight of Glory. Very appropriate, right? I can't recommend it enough. You can Google it and a PDF will pop up. You can read the whole thing. It's this sense that we were made for another world. He talks about that. The world we get tastes of leaves us longing for more, this nostalgia of Eden. He says this, quote, at present we are on the outside of the world. The wrong side of the door. You know how the kids got into Narnia? Through a door. I'm telling you, they're brilliant. I digress. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday. God willing, we shall get in. And that is the hope into which we're saved. Because Jesus suffered and was glorified, it gives meaning to suffering and even death. The New Testament whispers the news, glory, redemption, renewal, spring. Spring, it's coming. A new world. The present suffering and darkness is a small and passing thing. We're in the dark just before the dawn. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we pray for faith. Oh God, how we need faith to produce a hope, a hope that allows us to endure patiently for what we can't see, but we know it's true. We, can, we can't see it. We can feel it. We can taste it. We get glimpses of it. Thank you for those. 
Thank you for the ways in which we're already seeing the first fruit, not just the spirit as a guarantee, but the first fruit of Jesus, you're making all things new. The fact that we receive new members, the fact that we see people come out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, these are all whispers that it will not always be so. One day we shall get in. Uh, And so help us uh, as we continue uh, to journey together. Uh, Would you give us faith that produces a hope and that that hope would result in loving lives, beautiful works of love to uh, one another as a church and to our city, uh, that you might be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. And so receive these words as you go. Uh, If your faith is in Christ, as the promises, you go wherever you go to face, he goes with you. Uh, And so if you're prone to lose heart, or you're, you're, you're not feeling of good courage uh, today, may these words fill you. Uh, may they empower you. May they fuel you for whatever he has for you, or whatever you're facing when you uh, go from here for the week. Okay? So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.